Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Phil Wiseman. It's a pleasure to meet you if you are new. Um, and I'm the lead pastor here at Table Church. It's great to have you here worshiping with us today. There's lots of places you could be right now, but you're here, and we're grateful for that. Now, if you have a Bible, would you please open it to Acts chapter 1? Uh, and if you don't have a Bible but would like one, just put your hand up high, and an usher will bring you one. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep the one that we give you. So Acts chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1, and we will read through verse 11. We are starting a new series today. We're kicking off a series on the book of Acts. We're going to camp out in Acts for a good chunk of the summer. And I, for one, am particularly excited to open this book with you. So let's get started. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke is the author of Acts, and he says this, in my former book, Theophilus, his former book was the book of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has sent by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So last school year, my oldest daughter, Bella, graduated from elementary school and entered middle school. So she just finished her sixth grade year. And in case you've forgotten about that transition from elementary school to middle school, let me remind you, it's quite a jump. In elementary school, you walk in a line with your class. In middle school, you have to be a fullback in order to break through the jungle of middle schoolers keeping you from your destination. You have to get yourself where you need to be when you need to be there. In elementary school, most parents still dress their children. In middle school, they start to dress themselves. So you never know what you're going to get. Middle school is an entirely different planet, you might almost say. I remember Bella saying, like, this is so different. And it is. I use this illustration because I want to emphasize today, and actually in this whole series, the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Because the difference between those two things is not, is, makes, makes the difference between elementary and middle school look like nothing. So for the next eight weeks, like I said, we're going to be in the book of Acts. And I want to give you the main point of this entire series right out of the gate. This is, the main, this is what I want to communicate through this, for, the, for the next eight weeks. It's this. Acts tells us how the Holy Spirit makes this possible for us to live in a kingdom 
that is of an entirely different order. Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit filling a people and empowering them to live in a kingdom that is entirely different than the one that they could see around them. That's what Acts is doing. Now when I say an entirely different order, I'm not talking about comparing apples and oranges, it's more like apples and elephants. Like we're talking about something so different. We cannot think of God's kingdom as like an improvement on earthly kingdoms or governments. It is entirely different. In fact, we're gonna say it like this today and through this series. God's kingdom is not an upgrade, it's an apocalypse. Now, we need to learn the biblical term apocalypse today. Apocalypse, in order to do that, though, I can't decide if I wanna stay on the patio or the yard. I keep going back and forth here. Um, In order to do that, we need to put out of our minds uh, Hollywood depictions of apocalypse as like the end of the world in catastrophe. You know, like that's, that's, not, that's not it. The biblical word apocalypse simply means an uncovering or an unveiling or a revealing. That's apocalypse. Apocalypsis, the Greek word, uh, often is translated revelation. That's where we get the title of the last book of the New Testament. Apocalypsis, it's just revelation. Now, the Greek word that is translated, Revelation, apocalypse, is just an unveiling of the truth. And the thing we need to understand is when, when there's an apocalypse, when a truth is revealed, that truth runs completely counter, completely opposite to what you would assume to be the case, to what you thought you knew. Apocalypse is a complete reversal. Look how Paul describes the gospel that he preaches in Galatians. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by apocalypsis. That's the word. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He's saying the gospel is an apocalypse. You can't just logically deduce your way into it. It has to be revealed to you. It has to be an apocalypse. So it is important to understand that an apocalypse is not something that we can just figure out on our own. We need help in order to live in it, in order to understand it, in order to see it. Paul was not taught the gospel. It had no human origin, he says. It was revealed to him. This means that there is no way we can live in God's kingdom on our own. The kingdom of God requires a totally alternative way of life. And the church cannot sustain the kind of life that we are called to without help. And Acts is about what that help looks like. It's called the Holy Spirit. Acts is about the Holy Spirit forming an entirely new culture right in the heart of what was then called the Roman Empire. The church is a colony of heaven planted right in the heart of the largest empire in the world. The first chapter of Acts lays the groundwork for this message with what we have called the ascension of Jesus. Um, I, if I had a voice to decide these things, I would um, argue that we've missed something with our church calendar celebration. We make a big deal of Christmas, as we should. 
We make a big deal at Easter, as we should. But I often wonder if maybe Ascension Sunday should also be a big deal. Because look, the resurrection was just one stop on a trajectory that was leading to ascension. Ascension is when Jesus, I mean, this is the culmination of the whole thing, at least up to this point. Ascension is Jesus enthroned as king over the cosmos. That's what's happening in the ascension. And so we need to stop for a moment on Acts chapter one, and we need to figure out what this is all about, what the ascension means for us, and that's what we're gonna do today. So it takes place 40 days after the resurrection. Now in the book of Luke, which is the prequel to Acts. I said earlier that Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Um, And so don't read Luke and then stop. Read Luke and then keep going on to Acts. Don't just read Acts, read Luke first. Uh, It it should just be one book. It bothers me that we have a book in between them. I understand why, because John is also a gospel, so putting all the gospels together, but really it would make a lot of sense if Luke and Acts were just all together. So I need you to think in terms of Luke and Acts together. Now in Luke, Uh, we notice some interesting things that happen after Jesus comes back from the dead, after the resurrection. Something's different about the resurrected Jesus. Some things that seem to have changed about him. For example, his disciples, more often than not, don't recognize him when they see him after the resurrection. Which has, I mean, you could preach a sermon on that. But Like, sometimes we don't see Jesus when he's looking us right in the face, right? And that's what was happening literally with the disciples. They often didn't recognize him at first. At one point, when they finally do recognize him, Jesus suddenly disappears from their sight. Now, that's important because Jesus had never done that before. And I know it's easy. You you read it and you're like, well, yeah, he's the son of God. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, right? No, like, he had never done that before. This is new behavior from Jesus, just disappearing from people's sight. And another time, he, he just appears in a room where everybody's standing. Like, this is different. Jesus had never done that before either. Suddenly, Jesus knows how to apparate. Where did this come from? And it seems that even when Jesus appeared, they, they still can't believe it's him. They, it says they think he's a ghost. It says this in Luke. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see me. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Like Jesus has to try to convince them over and over again. And so what we're establishing here is that there is something different about the resurrected Jesus. Something's changed. He looks a little different. Um, He acts and behaves a little different. And maybe it's just a little too much for his early followers to really take in at first. Look, they were not any smarter than they were back then. They understood that dead people don't come back to life just as much as we understand it now. It's not like there's been some scientific discovery we'd be like, oh, dead people stay dead. Wow, didn't, didn't realize that. No, they understood it. And it was just as hard for them to believe it as it is for us sometimes today. And so it, it, it takes them a while. They can't take it in all at once. In fact, it says in Acts chapter one, we just read this, it says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs. He gave many convincing proofs to his followers that he'd really come back from the dead. Like they, they just wouldn't believe him, which is wild to think about. So the resurrected Jesus has, has something different about him, something we might say, something more supernatural about him. And yet, despite all of that, he still ate breakfast He still got hungry. And so there's something 
I don't know, we got themes of, you know, Gandalf the White coming back after he died, you know, after the Belrog thing, Lord of the Rings, nerds. Um, You got that going on. There's something different about him, right? And yet, he's still eating fish for breakfast with with his friends. And so there's at the same time something natural about him, something earthly about him. And that's the whole point. Listen, the resurrected Jesus is the first place where heaven and earth are brought fully together. Where this whole project of redemption, like we we suddenly see where it's all going and it first occurs in the resurrected body of Jesus. There's something different but the same. There's continuity between what was but there's also something unrecognizable, something apocalyptic, something that has to be revealed to them before they recognize that it's really him. The whole plan of redemption is about bringing together heaven and earth. That's where this is going. That's what we see in the last two chapters of Revelation. Heaven comes down to earth. God dwelling with his people. God, you know, renewing the broken world that we live in. And in the body of Jesus, we see it happening for the first time. The future has broken into the present through the resurrected Jesus. N.T. Wright says they believed that heaven and earth are the two interlocking spheres of God's reality and that the, cho- the risen body of Jesus is the first object which is fully at home in both. And so listen, when, when Jesus then ascends to heaven, this moment is very, very rich. And so we, we need to, this has been some theological, I don't know, heavy lifting so far. We got more to come, so just stay with me here. This moment is full of, of meaning. Don't think of it as though, it's not Star Trek. Jesus is not teleported up into space someplace past the moon. Okay, that's not what we're supposed to take from this. It says, a cloud hid him from their sight. Throughout the Bible, a cloud represents the presence of God, whether it's leading Israel through the desert on top of Mount Sinai, when the temple is consecrated under Solomon, uh, at the transfiguration, when there's a cloud, it means that the, the presence of God is like enveloping that space. And, and so when there's a, Jesus is hidden from their sight by a cloud, is, he's taking up into heaven. He's in the presence of God, in God's domain. And it's this incredible moment that we don't consider enough because remember, Jesus' body is a resurrected supernatural body, but it's also still a human body. It's a human body. And the second person of the Trinity remains human. Stephen Siemens, a theologian, says this, in his incarnation, he became fully human, and when he ascended, he unashamedly refused to rid himself of his humanity. Instead, he took humanity to heaven and enthroned it at God's right hand. That's cool. A.W. Tozer points out that at the ascension, Jesus took our nature, quote, into the Godhead. This is the dignity that Christianity places upon humanity. No secular humanism can come close to this. Like I said, we've been doing some heavy theological lifting today which is fun, but it's also important to say, okay, what does this change? So how, what does this mean for how I live? Let's unpack that. It, I think the answer lies in verse eight. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Look, if we were to condense the book of Acts into one sentence, it's that sentence. That's Acts in a sentence. Jesus says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Listen, the reason that all this ascension and resurrection theology matters is because it means we have something to share. Guys, heaven and earth just came together. We've seen it. Like God has just shown up. He's just invaded our world. We've seen it. He's done it through Jesus Christ. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will tell the world about this truth. No, in a, what's a witness? In a courtroom, a witness is simply a person who, who testifies what they've seen. Notice this. A witness is not there to share their opinion. A witness is not there to even interpret what they've seen. They're just there to give you the facts. That's what a good witness does. They're just there to say, look, this is what I've seen. Uh, it reminds me, a little bit later in, in Acts, we're going to have this guy who's healed by the disciples, and the, the authorities are like pressing him on it, and they're like, look, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is I was blind. Now I see. Like, that guy's being a witness. This is, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is what I've seen here. That's what a witness does. And Jesus is saying, you will receive the Holy Spirit, and he will enable you to share, to testify, to be a witness to an apocalyptic kingdom, a kingdom that is so different than the ones that you see around you, a kingdom that works on completely different principles, one where, in which miracles happen, one in which that runs on, on love and justice, not blood and sword like the ones that you've seen. The renewal has begun. The, they will say in Acts 17, we'll get, this in, get there in a few weeks, the, they will accuse the Christians, they will say they are turning the world upside down. They will use that phrase. They're turning the world upside down. What, is they, what do they mean by that? They're saying these Christians are operating by a completely different set of rules and it makes no sense to us and honestly, we're a little worried. Like we don't know where this is going, but a lot of people are joining them. They're turning the world upside down. The renewal has begun. Sometimes, I don't explain it like this, sometimes I walk into a room full of friends and I might say this, I might say, hey guys, what's going on? Or maybe my kids are playing downstairs and I hear a loud bang downstairs and I poke my head down the steps and I, I shout, hey, what's going on? When I ask that question, what's going on? I'm asking for a witness to explain to me what's happening. Tell me why I heard that noise and explain its significance for me. The question, what's going on, is a way of asking, hey, what do I need to know to make sense of things right now? And we all live our lives trying to answer that question. For some of my friends I graduated from high school with, what's going on is money and career and success. That is what makes sense of things. That is what makes sense of life. That's what draws the threads of life together for them. That's what's going on. I was with some high school friends not long ago and at the beginning of our meeting, one of them was on a Zoom call or something on his phone and he had it turned up all the way and it was very loud. And so naturally we're like, hey man, what's going on? And he said, oh, I'm getting my MBA from Harvard and I have to listen to this seminar. And we're like, cool story, bro. Can you turn it down? Uh, see, for him, what's going on is success and letting others know about it. That's what's going on. 
I once knew a guy who, this is the church I used to work at in South Dakota. I knew a guy who, um, he, he accepted a promotion at work. And this promotion would require him and his family to move to another state. And he was pretty broken up about it because um, they loved their church family. Their family was very well connected. His kids, like they loved it there too. And they were flourishing. And he just, he's just like, ah, I hate the idea of leaving. And I said, well, then don't. Like nothing says you have to accept a promotion, right? And his response was, well, they've given me an offer I can't refuse. In other words, he's saying, they've offered me so much money that it wouldn't make sense for me to turn it down. But you know, that only is true depending on your answer to the question, what's going on? Because your answer to the question of what's going on is how you make sense of the world. And so if your answer to that question is money, well, then no, it doesn't make sense to turn down something like that. To turn down money in exchange for community and friendship wouldn't make sense if that were the case. And so they, he took the job and they moved. By the way, they were so miserable, they moved back two years later. Listen, the, the ancient Roman world where Acts was written had a very clear and confident answer to the question, what's going on? They knew how things worked. What's going on is that the gods have blessed Caesar. I mean, look at this. Rome has conquered the entire known world. Clearly, the gods have blessed Caesar, and Rome is the most powerful empire ever. Rome is what matters, and the Roman way is both right and true and good. Today, if you go to Rome, you can stand underneath one of the oldest Roman arches. It's called the Arch of Titus. And it was built after Emperor Titus crushed a Jewish rebellion. And if you stand directly beneath it and look straight up, you'll see an engraving. And it's a picture of an eagle carrying the soul of Titus to heaven to be divinized with the gods. And so that's what's going on for them. Caesar is Lord that's what's going on. By the way, there's, this, is not, this is not my sermon, but there's all sorts of things we can talk about. The fact that the Romans saw the disembodied soul of a Caesar going to heaven, but for the Christians, they said, no, heaven and earth have come together. Jesus stays human in his ascension. And that says a lot about what Christianity affirms about creation, right? But that's another sermon. The early Christians, this, this, this motley group of, of mostly peasants from Galilee, they, they had the audacity to stay to this entire Roman edifice. They said, no, something else is going on. What's going on is that Caesar isn't the real Lord. Jesus is Lord. And God proved it by raising him from the dead and taking him into heaven. And what's going on is that through Jesus' sacrifice, God is redeeming the world. Heaven and earth are coming together. Your sins can be forgiven. What's going on is that there is a greater kingdom than Rome that just crash-landed on earth and is taking over little by little in small gatherings all throughout the empire. And these, are, these, these communities are fueled by a power called the Holy Spirit. This kingdom runs on love and justice, not blood and sword. See Kevin Rose, a New Testament scholar, he says, Acts offers a coherent vision of the apocalypse of God because this vision is nothing short of an alternative total way of life. The book of Acts narrates the formation of a new culture, 
That is what we are supposed to be. That culture has a name. It's called the church. The church sits in the midst of a bigger culture and and witnesses to an entirely different way of life, the way of Jesus. In Africa, there's this tiny little country. I hope I say it right. It's called Lesotho. And um, I had never even heard of it. I'd gone to Africa several times, and I'd never even heard of this country. It's it's just a small little country, and it's 12,000 square miles for comparison. Iowa is about 56,000 square miles. So it's very small. It's completely landlocked. It sits right in the middle of another country, South Africa. And um, when I first saw the picture of Lesotho, and I see it just kind of sitting there right in the middle of another country, I'm like, that's like the church. It's like we're this little community, this little nation, sitting in the middle of a much larger one. But what separates us is not borders. What separates us is our culture. We have a different answer to the question, what's going on? That's why a Christian in America shares more of a heritage with a Christian in Iraq than their non-believing next-door neighbor because we share the same answer to that question. Look, the kingdom of God is just as apocalyptic now as it was then. It is just as different now as it was then. The, the, The gospel calls us to a radical break with the ways of the world, and it does so just as much now as it did 2,000 years ago. It still requires us to enter an entirely different culture, a culture that runs by a different set of rules, has a different vocabulary, has a different way of understanding the world because it, because it worships the resurrected Jesus, and yet it is called into the world in order to love and serve the world. And so one of our goals in this series is to, is to ask the question, which culture is in the driver's seat of my life? Who's calling the shots? And I, I want us to be challenged by just the, the radical break that the early Christians made. And they couldn't have done it without some sort, of, some sort of help, without the infilling of God himself. I want us to receive power to be witnesses to this incredible truth. To be witnesses to the ascended Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father and rules over all the world. To testify and to demonstrate a new way to live. To be an apocalyptic community that offers hope and healing and love to a world that that is finding truth in all the wrong places. On June 25th, so the last Sunday of this month, we're gonna be doing a baptism And so, as we're talking about living in a different kingdom, about being a witness to a different kind of truth, uh, nothing could be more fitting than baptism because baptism is how we declare that Jesus is Lord. It's not one of the ways, I mean, it's the way we do it. Baptism is the public profession that we now belong to Jesus. And so, if you've never been baptized before, I want to invite you to consider it. And you can write baptism on your card, on your connection card. And uh, we have an informational class on the 17th at the ministry center. And we'll just kind of sit and and I'll kind of help you understand biblically what we're talking about here. But if you've never been baptized, but you follow Jesus, then I want to encourage you to be baptized. There's no replacing it. It's just something we do. It's part of what it means. But if you don't follow Jesus... Or maybe you think you follow Jesus and you just kind of are realizing, I'm not sure that um, my life really is any different because of Jesus. 
maybe it's time for you to ask Jesus to be your Lord, to ask Jesus to be your Savior, to submit your life to his lordship, his kingship, to, to live as though he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is the one in charge ruling over the, all the cosmos. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. In fact, it's, it's not hard to start. It's hard to do your entire life, and you will need help. And you have help. It's called the Holy Spirit and the church. But if you want to begin that journey today, I want to invite you to do that. So would you close your eyes with me? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a prayer. And if, if you want to follow Jesus today, I want you to tell me. <laughs> and here's how you can tell me. On your connection card, there's a cross, and you can circle that cross, and that's, that's the symbol, that's the sign that, hey, I wanna be a part of this apocalyptic community. I want to live under the lordship of Jesus. I have had too many other lords that were pretenders to the throne. It's time for the true king to be lord of my life. And so God, I ask that today, for anyone who needs to make that step, that you would send power from on high for them to do it. That you would enable hearts to come to you. And that you would enable us as a church to walk with them in love. God is, I I pray over, well, first I wanna pray over the sermon I just preached. Every time I preach, I'm like, wow, I said lots of things. Lots of words came out of my mouth, but God, they're nothing. They're nothing without you. I, I need you to take my humble and meager attempts to spin something coherent together and, 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 and use it, God. And I pray over the rest of this series as well that it would be a transforming moment for our church that we would start to see ourselves as missionaries to a culture that needs to hear the news of the ascended Jesus. In order for that to happen, we need power from on high. We need help. And so Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill us and renew us? Convict us and restore us? We love you, God. I pray, Lord, for anybody here who wants to take that step that you would encourage their hearts right now that you are there to receive them. And today, if you are here and you know that you are separated from God by your sin, you need to understand that that is precisely why he died. There is no sin too grave, no sinner beyond his grasp. And that if we believe that he can't forgive our sins, then what we're saying is that his death was not enough. But that's not true. And so today, hand them over to Jesus. And pray this, Jesus, would you take my sin away? Would you forgive me for what I've done? And would you empower me to walk with you now? Be the Lord of my life. Be the king of my heart. And guide me all my days. Amen.